This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to do something a little bit different. Now, typically, we interview authors who already have published their work, but today's guest, Vanessa David, is in that in-between stage between writing a manuscript and publication. So here today to talk about that and so much more is Vanessa David. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Well, happy to have you here, Vanessa. I'm curious, um, where does your story as an author begin? I actually had a, a theater career for almost, well, over two decades. Um, and about halfway through that, I was just an actor. And uh, halfway through, I got this crazy idea that I was going to take control of my theater career by becoming a playwright. And if you know anything about the theater, you know that didn't really work out. But, <laughs> but um, so yeah, I started writing short plays, and probably the first five of them were just absolutely god-awful. And uh, eventually I sort of mastered the art of the 10-minute play, and I have quite a few 10-minute uh, plays that are published and were performed all over the country, some in England. Um, and so that was pretty much, that was the beginning of it for me. Okay, and what in yeah. and, and just kind of keep us back in time a little bit. Um, when you said you were acting, you know, wh where were you acting? Um, kind of what are the things? It sounds like you were more on the stage, but um, can you tell me more about what, what kind of drew you to acting and what, what some of the things you did were? I did theater almost my whole life. You know, my mother always told me that I had to be famous. So um, I've started theater at a very young age doing um, community theater in Stanford. And then I went to college for theater, and then I ended up doing a lot of musicals. I did a, a Yoko Ono musical, and you haven't lived until you've been in a Yoko Ono musical. It was, called <laughs> was there Hiroshima. a lot of screaming? A, lot of screaming uh, a little bit, or? yes. It was about Hiroshima and the bomb. So we actually ended up on Saturday Night Live as a, as a joke. You know, they said Hiroshima bombed. And, <laughs> and um, I did some... Uh, Children's Theater in Bridgeport with the Downtown Cabaret Theater. I did work with them for like 10 years, and I did the Christmas show at the Spinning Wheel Inn for like seven years. So I did a lot of stuff. I did a lot of, you know, piecing, acting work together. But while you're doing that, you're having to have a survival job. So I did cake decorating. I worked at a frozen yogurt shop for decades more than I would like to admit. 
I uh, ended up working as a server. So I sort of had this dual career going between entertainment and food. Was it TCBY in Stanford by any chance? It was at the mall. I worked at the mall. <laughs> I worked at TCBY in Darien. And I worked at TCBY on High Ridge Road. I worked at them all. Yeah. I like to yes, say we I've... celebrated a birthday between 1993 and 2008. I probably made your birthday cake. <laughs> I, I am sure that I have seen you there because my mother used to send me on uh, TCBY runs uh, all the time because <laughs> uh, it was her favorite thing. But um, why was it so important for your mother for you to be famous? That's, you know, that's a good question. My mother grew up in Liverpool during World War II. Um, you know, she and her brother were sent away to the, the, you know, the country for a few years during the war. And uh, she ended up escaping Liverpool by uh, be becoming a dancer. And she was a dancer in troops. And she, uh, you know, kind of like ice capades. She rode the elephant in the circus. You know, that was, that was her ticket out of Liverpool. So I think she sort of passed that on to me, is that becoming famous was going to be my ticket to success. It, it didn't work wasn't there, out. <laughs> wasn't there a big band that came out of Liverpool in maybe the 60s? Oh, yeah. Something about bugs. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, it's the, the Eagles, maybe. I'm not. Something like, I think it rhymes with that. Yeah. <laughs> certainly something to do with Yoko Ono, though, from what I yes, remember. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of brings you full circle a little bit. There we go. Interview over. All right. <laughs> I mean, did did you feel a lot of pressure from your mom? I mean, and, and what did that do for, you know, to, to you specifically? I did. Um, you know, I, I ended up pursuing theater way longer than I should have, I think. Um, I ended up finally quitting. Gosh, I don't remember now. 2017. Um and she had already been dead for eight years. So even, even after she was dead, I was really trying to please my mother and become famous in the theater. And, um, you know, I was good at it, I think. I, now I'm not. I tried reading a monologue that I wrote the other day, and I didn't believe a word I said. And it was autobiographical. So, <laughs> so I've lost whatever it was that I had as an actor. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, it really, it's a terrible business. Uh, you know, it's very dehumanizing. You know, you go, I went to New York for seven years auditioning before I, before I booked a job and just think about all the money I spent on the headshots and the train rides. You know, I, I really wish I hadn't done it for so long, but, mm. but Hey, here we are. Here we are, but you you kind of pivoted. You started writing your own your own plays, and you know, admittedly, yes. you mentioned that the first the first few may not have been um, you know prize winners, um, <laughs> but you did have some success in in getting some plays um, kind of out there. H how did you approach playwriting? How did the ideas come to you? How did you get better at it? Uh, you know, I just kept at it. I joined a, a writing group in, uh, in Stratford, Connecticut. And so every time there was like a themed show coming up, I would write something for that theme. And then I would also uh, submit to you know, play writing competitions all over, you know, and usually they had a theme or like a word. There's something that that was like the seed of the idea. And then I just sort of just kept at it and just got better. The, one of the first 
performances of one of my plays I went to. I don't even remember what the play was called. I remember it was something about the Ninth Amendment, which, you know, who cares about plays about the Ninth Amendment? But <laughs> but I thought I was being all, you know, intellectual or whatever. And they did my play, and everybody sort of politely clapped. And then they did the next play, and people were, like, really clapping, and they were into it. And the lady sitting in front of me turned to the woman next to her and said, well, that play I understood. <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, the audience needs to actually understand what I'm talking about. So it was sort of like a real light bulb moment for me. And uh, I, you know, I ended up, I think I have five or six that are published. And, uh, you know, people do them all over the country. And you know, people will, will, you know, email me asking for the rights to do it. And it's so nice to hear, like, high school kids are doing one of my plays, you know. And it just, I let them do it for free because it's just... It's it's important to me that my work is helping to to form young actors. It's um, yeah. and one of my plays is about Alzheimer's. My mother had Alzheimer's, and so when I hear they're doing that play, it's just it's just it's extra important to me. Yeah, sure. Um, well, it's it's a legacy of sorts. You know that yes. that work is a, a legacy of sorts. You know, long after people may have forgotten, you know, your performances at the Spinning Wheel Inn, but they'll remember. <laughs> Remember the play about Alzheimer's? Maybe not the one about the Ninth Amendment. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, please don't. <laughs> I, I couldn't even tell you what the Ninth Amendment is. <laughs> you know, I, I, just, I can't right now. I <laughs> something if, about states' if, rights. You know, compelling. If, if Yoko, if Yoko Ono, if Yoko Ono had a gun to my head, right, I would not be able to tell you <laughs> no, what the Ninth Amendment no. is and threaten to start screaming and singing. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, so you stopped in 2017. Um, wh what did you do after that? Wh where did your sort of day job, your survival job take you? I, so there was a little bit of overlap there. I became a, a lunch lady um, in it was January of 2015 when I started doing that job. And uh, I had gone to culinary school a few years earlier and... Um, so I was, you know, sort of working part-time as this lunch lady thing, sort of trying to rebuild my life after my mother's Alzheimer's, because that really took a lot out of me, um, you know, emotionally, financially. It was just very draining taking her, care of her for so long. And uh, there was a little bit of overlap where I was still trying to make the theater work, and I was involved in a workshop in Norwalk, uh, Connecticut, and it just was just sucking the life out of me. I was on the board and I was ending up having to run the theater and run all these fundraisers. And eventually I just burnt out and I couldn't do it anymore. And when I got to that breaking point where I couldn't do the theater anymore, it just released like a weight off of my chest. And I just felt so much better not doing it anymore. And then I sort of focused all my energy into the kitchen and on cooking and making the kids some good food introducing them to, to food that's not pizza and not hamburgers. And that was a real, that was a lot of fun. I worked at the Darien School Lunch Program for seven years. So first I worked at the high school for three and a half years, doing all the baking and running the cash register and do it, running myself ragged, you know, for three and a half hours a day. It's, it's incredibly demanding work. And, uh, and then I became the uh, manager at the, one of the local elementary schools. Tokenique Elementary School in Darien. Now I'm curious did did your your background at TCBY 
um, you know, spur a passion for the food service industry that drew you into it back in 2015? I think so. I think it, it wasn't only that, you know, I think I had my own issues with my parents not feeding me lunch when I was in, in elementary school. So I think that sort of sowed the seeds of, of and that, you know, this, this story that I talked about recently on my Instagram page, when I was at Turner River Middle School, I was uh, sitting at one end of the table with all the heavy metal kids and all the rap kids were sitting at the other end of the table. And one of them threw something at us and genius me throws a piece of bagel back at them. And so then we're all lining up to go back to the classroom and I feel a big slap in my eye and somebody has slapped a barbecue sauce into my eye. And of course, the F-bomb comes flying out of my mouth and the teacher was shocked. And <laughs> she, sent, she sent me back into the kitchen to wash out my eye and I'm, you know, I'm just standing there kind of in shock. And the lunch, one of the lunch ladies came in and was looking at me into the mirror and she was just so kind and so, you know, she was, why did she do that? And I was like, I don't know, you know, and it was just, that was a real defining moment for me. She was one of the first adults that showed that she cared about me, not because it was in her job description, but because she was a human and I was human and I was hurting and she wanted to help me. And so I think, I think back on that moment and I think that's part of the genesis of what made it possible for me to become a lunch lady because I want to have that same effect on kids. So this, you know, this woman, and these are one, this is one of those experiences that I think so many people would just forget and file away, especially, you know, I don't know how many years later, what, 30 plus it, years later? It was later, on the maybe? day of the Challenger ex, uh, thing, okay. the, the explosion. So that's so that 1986. Was, was that yeah. 86, January of 86, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you think about, I mean, I couldn't tell you too much about <laughs> You know, memories I had from school. Uh, I was in grammar school at the time in 86, probably sixth grade. Um, but um, you remembered this. It left it left an impression on you, which impacted you kind of much later, uh, much later on in life. Um, what, what was your path? And I know you're I'm only going to use the term because you've been using it lunch lady. And I, of course, have to you mentioned SNL before. I'm thinking of Adam Sandler and Chris yes. Farley as I say these words, <laughs> but you know, what what um, you know, what was your path to becoming a, a lunch lady? I really got into food after my mom died. Um, we, my husband and I, started hosting dinner parties for our friends as a way to sort of rebuild our social life and our you know our shattered existence, and so food became a real healing thing for me, you know, sharing food with others. There's no better feeling than cooking all day and having your friends over to eat dinner. And there's absolute silence because the food is so good. That is just the best feeling. And so that was something that it sort of just ignited in me that I wanted to share this with kids and how important food is. And it's, it's more than just eating pizza every day. You know, there's, there's a real love language to food and food is also fuel. It's not, uh, I don't, I don't like to think of food as nutrition. I think of it as fuel, you know, to fuel your body and to make, make things possible. You know, I'm a hiker, so food really fuels my hikes. It's not about denying myself certain f foods. It's about finding the right food to make my body work the way that I want it to. 
Yeah, and 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 as you're talking about this and, and kind of your love of kind of nourishing others, you know, I'm I'm kind of thinking about you know this this you know Vanessa from middle school who didn't have. It sounds like you weren't you weren't really packing. You weren't having a lunch packed for you. No. Um, and it's almost like you're as a lunch lady. And tell me if I'm smoking crack here, but you know you're you're kind of feeding the kids who who. Um, maybe you're feeding your younger self by, by doing so during, during oh, yeah. that period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And even in Darien, Darien's a, a rich district, but we still had kids who didn't have lunch money. You know, there were plenty of kids that I paid for their lunch. And there were kids who were, you know, somewhat food illiterate. You know, you got to teach them new things about food. Um, so, yeah, it was it was it all came from a place of love. Um. Talk to me about the book that you're writing, um, the manuscript that you're working on. Um, What's it about and what prompted you to start writing it? So the book is called The Lunch Teacher, and it's actually finished. It took me maybe six or seven weeks to write the first draft, and then I've been working on numerous uh, drafts with an editor. Uh, So now I'm I'm on the agent stage of shopping. But um, it's really about, you know, my whole career at the Darien School Lunch Program and what happened in the end. Um, unfortunately, with COVID, we also had on top of that, we had outsourcing. So the district decided that we weren't going to be self-operated lunch program anymore, that we were, they were going to get an outside company to come in and run the lunch program. And between the two, I am no longer working there. So don't want to give it all away, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, um, you know, so the book goes back, you know, to those Genesis moments, you know, with the barbecue sauce and with my parents sending me to school with no lunch. Uh, and it also sort of follows my career and the strength that I found after my mother passed away and filing the, the theater career firmly into the past. And, um, I'm very proud of it. It was it was actually not really hard to write, which <laughs> which I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's normal, but I was at the well, point. You know, I was really um, angry, and so you know when I had to leave my job, it was very emotional for me. And I think it was sort of like that same moment with the with the playwriting, where I was trying to take take a hold of my career, you know, by writing this book, just like I was trying to take a hold of my career by writing plays. You know, you, you mentioned it wasn't all that hard to write. Um, you might, uh, I'd be curious to, to speak with you again in a year and see how yes. hard it was to rewrite and rewrite <laughs> and rewrite after it goes through the, <laughs> you know, after more people start looking at it yes, and providing yes. their feedback on it. But, you know, in terms of lessons to um, other people, because a lot of the people that listen to this are aspiring authors themselves. And um, in terms of lessons for other people, and one thing that I can think of is that, um, you know, I, I tell authors, you know, there, there's a story inside you that only you can tell, and you have to find what that story is. Now, this being a memoir is a story that only you can tell um, because it's your story. It's your personal story. But the, the same could be said for fiction um, as well. I'm curious, as you were kind of going back in time and kind of revisiting these experiences, you know, some of them certainly positive, some of them maybe negative and emotional did did you learn anything about yourself as you were going through this process? I did. Um, I actually found it made a, it helped me make a connection between the emotional eating that I do now, 
Um, and, you know, I finally realized, you know, my parents, they didn't send me to school with food, but at home we were very good with food. I, my father was Hungarian, my mother was British, and so we always had delicious home-cooked meals for dinner that took me around the globe. And so um, that, on that note, they, they nailed it. So I think I made sort of a, a more unhealthy connection between eating and love. And so I find when I'm sitting on the couch at night, emotional eating, it's because I'm trying to feed my soul and not feed my stomach. And somehow writing this book helped me make that connection. And, and I've gotten much better. I'm not doing as much emotional eating anymore. Yes, I, I could say the same about emotional drinking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't drink, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> sitting, sitting on my couch in the evening. Um, <laughs> you know, but um, not, not to really make fun of that. But, um, <laughs> but I, I certainly can relate to what you're saying. You know, there are, so, there, there are behaviors around eating. And, and you know, I grew up in a... Um, you know, I'm, I'm half Italian, half Irish, uh, and you know, my mother was the Italian one, and you know, in the Italian culture, you know, just cooking is an expression of love. Yes. Um, and you know, my grandmother, if you weren't eating enough, something was wrong. Something was wrong with you. And to this day, if I go to a friend's house, you know, her mother, you know, another Italian friend of mine, first thing she'll do is sit me down and put food in front of me, and I'm like, I'm, I'm not hungry. She's like, Nah, <laughs> you don't know, you don't know you're hungry. <laughs> you know, um, so we're taught like culturally that, you know, food is this expression of love. And um, you know, that's why it is a challenge for many of us when, when we try and maybe shed a few pounds. Yes. Um, to, to kind of reframe what food is Now you mentioned, you know, food being fuel, um, especially for the kids. And I know we don't want to give too, too, too much away from the book, but um, just reading what I've read about you, and I know there was a, um, a big article that Angela Corella did. Um, I think it was the Connecticut Examiner. Um, you know, you, you kind of one of your philosophies was that heating heating things up is not cooking. No. Um, can Can you talk a little bit more about that, or what can you share about that? Uh, well, towards the end, when, once we had outsourced the the lunch program, almost everything that I was cooking was out of a box, and it was really. It was killing my soul to do that. Um, when I had first taken over as, as the elementary manager at the school, we were still self-operated. So we had fresh produce and all sorts of, you know, fresh ingredients, organic chicken breasts. So I was constantly, if I had, you know, a 45-minute section of time, I was figuring out how to make chicken and white bean chili for the teachers in that time, you know, or something. I was constantly trying to, you know, minimize food waste. And I was making soup from scratch for the teachers and for the kids. So um, I, I just love doing that. There's, there's just, there's nothing better than to give somebody a, a, some of your food and, you know, to make them happy. And the, the kids were really in, they were really into the homemade soup. You know, it's funny that, um, that, we were making like roasted cauliflower soup and they were clamoring for it. <laughs> so you, you just have to give them a, an opportunity and you don't have to talk to them. You know, I, I don't talk to kids like they're children. I just talk to them like they're equals. And, um, and I think that that earns me a lot of street cred with them, I suppose. And uh, I, I could get the kids to almost any kid to try anything and, and stickers. You have to give them stickers sometimes. <laughs> 
Very, very important for the uh, for the grammar school, elementary school set stickers. Yes. Um. Uh. So we're gonna um move on to um the hard stuff uh, with regards to writing. Um. And a lot of people tell me that you know writing is the easy part. Uh, the hard part is what happens after you you finish that last paragraph. Um, so can you share anything with me about your journey to try and get this in front of agents um, and how that's going? I have sent to over 30 agents so far. I've gotten eight that haven't replied, and I think I'm up to 10 no's. I got one today in two hours and 10 minutes. <laughs> that might that's, be a record. That, that could be a record. That could be a record. Um and the best is when you start comparing all of the rejection letters and, and seeing where the similarities are to see yes. if they're using like the same form. Yes, or if yeah. they, you know, and I think a win during this process is um, getting some kind of acknowledgement that they actually did read it or that they have something constructive to say while they're saying no. Yes. Yeah. I had a few like um, one. Uh, suggested uh, the titles made and nickel and dimed as you know comparative titles, which I thought was very nice of her to, to make that suggestion. Um, I had two agents from one agency read the book, and they both got back and said that you know the writing was compelling, but I didn't have enough social media followers. So, <laughs> so and one you know thought the 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 writing was or the the story was too localized. Which says to me that they don't understand the what's going on with school food because this is this thing with outsourcing is happening all over the country, and especially yeah. post COVID, uh, you know there so many uh, school food workers have walked away from the job. They don't get paid enough. There's not enough people. I just read an article in it, Alaska that they're serving the kids like beef jerky and oranges and not hot food because there's nobody there to prepare it, you know, but are they going to do that for minimum wage anymore? I don't think so. So that, that's a, yeah. a goal of the book is I really want to, to bring all these issues to light. What, you know, what school food workers face and I want, you know, higher wages for them. I think you can't have improved school food for the kids if you do not improve working conditions for the women and the men who make it happen. I think they go hand in hand. Yeah. You know, that comment on social media um, is just it's just a, such a head scratcher because they here here you are. And, and so many of other people have told, told us to me as well, you know, first time author, don't have a huge following. Don't you haven't established a platform yet. But these agents seem to want people who have established platforms. But how can you establish a big platform or a wide platform before you have something to, to share kind of on mass it's it's um it's like a chicken and egg thing it is um <laughs> it's it's maddening it's maddening but yeah it, it not, is reality I, and yeah i'm trying not to let it get me down you know it's uh, i went through all this rejection with the theater you know decades ago so i'm i'm actually very good at taking the rejection i don't if you're not the right agent for me that's great i don't want you i want you i want the right agent i want somebody who's going to believe in my book going to believe in in the the power it has to change the industry and that's who i want so i'm yeah. i'm willing to take all the no's to get to the right yes there you go that's that's the right uh, attitude to have 
Um, well, I'm going to uh, transition to talking about um, other things. Number sure. one, um, you know, I call this uncorking a story because we like to get at the stories behind the story, which is our author's story. Um, you today, Vanessa, are our author. So uh, I'm curious to get to know you a little bit more through pop culture. Uh, and uh, my first question around those lines would be, when you were growing up, uh, what were some of the favorite your favorite uh, TV shows, if you had any? Oh gosh, I I consumed television like water. Um, so I, you know, what stands out to me, Little House on the Prairie. I remember that final episode when they blew up the whole town. That was amazing. <laughs> and uh, Mash, Mash also stands out to me. Oof. I remember watching the last episode of Mash on my black and white television in my bedroom, crying my eyes out. <laughs> I, I remember that too. My my grandfather was a um, a field surgeon in World War II, and Mash was one of his favorite shows. So, you know, we were th that was what eighty three, eighty two, eighty three, maybe something like that. Um, yeah, I still watch it now. It's it's in reruns now. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those shows that um, has a lot of humor, but it also has a lot of heart. Yes, um, and they they really managed to you know take that setting you know, this wartime setting and, and be able to do both with it. I think, um, yeah, it was, it was a great show. And for, for so many years, it was the number one watched broadcast program ever, the last episode of MASH. Yeah. Um, so a great show. Great a great show. show. Did you watch um, After MASH, which was, I think, the... <laughs> the <laughs> I think uh, I might have watched an episode or two, but yeah, that was, that was yeah. like the Night Court reboot. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I tried. I lasted I so four minutes. Wanted, I, I, you you lasted longer than I did. Um, I wanted so much to like that because I love the original show. Yes. It was so good. Um, such a great cast, but something, and it's not not as if you know the the actress who's playing uh, Harry Stone's daughter. Um, she doesn't do a bad job. It's just it's the idea. Maybe it's, it's maybe it's run its course. I don't know. Yeah. It's just... But I also find that with network television in general, it's uh, there, there's not a lot of there there. But um, I digress. <laughs> um, what about music? What were you listening to growing up? Sounds music. like heavy metal. Yeah, heavy metal. I was actually an Anthrax fan, and I'm going to see them on Friday. Really? <laughs> yes, they're going to be no at kidding. the casino. So. <laughs> Which which one the Mohegan Sun? Uh, yeah, Mohegan. Are they are they going to be at the Wolf Den or is it? Uh, no, um, they're in the arena. They're playing with Exodus arena. and Black Label Society. Holy smokes! Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the Toxic Waltz. That yeah. brings me back. To, uh... <laughs> Jesus. Yes. No, I wow. Was a, I was um, a big Anthrax fan in high school. Oh, me too. I'm among yeah. the living, uh, my friend. Yes. Um, I'll give him a shout out, Rob Salmonen. Gave me a cassette of Among the Living, and um, I'm like, oh, this is this is not poison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is that was the first song not... I heard was um, NFL, Evil Nick. Oh, that's great. Yes, and I oh, was like, oh, I love you know. them since then. Yeah. <laughs> and now it was great, and you know, you mentioned um, you know the, the rap kids on one side of of the lunch table and the metal kids on the other, but they really could come together with Anthrax after their you know collaboration with public enemy absolutely um, yeah one yes. of the first crossover um you know crossovers to have rap and metal and, oh, and yeah. to me that changed everything for me like that sound was so interesting and oh, so yeah. good 
I could go down a anthrax rabbit hole with you right now, but I will, uh, for the sake of the listeners, choose not to do that. Uh, <laughs> um, and what about um, uh, books? Were you a, were you a big reader back in the day? I was. When I was younger, I was a V.C. Andrews freak. <laughs> you know, all the Flowers in the Attic and Heaven series. I read all that stuff. And then when I got into high school, I uh, got into Kurt Vonnegut. I actually, my favorite movie was Footloose, and they mentioned Slaughterhouse-Five and Footloose, and so that's how I got into Kurt Vonnegut. I probably read almost every book he ever wrote. I was a huge do Vonnegut you, um, fan. Do you remember the movie Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield? Yes, vaguely, yes. So there's a scene in that movie where he hires, he's got to do a paper on Kurt Vonnegut um, to pass a class. He hires Kurt Vonnegut to write the paper. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then he wounds up failing it because. <laughs> and so it goes. <laughs> yeah, it was just so, so funny. That's my only Kurt Vonnegut story. That's um, awesome. But um, well, you know, as as we wrap up here, Vanessa, I'm curious um, if you could go back in time and whisper some words of advice into the younger Vanessa David. You know, the the one who who's feeling this pressure to become a, a performer and to become famous and who's not having enough uh, food to eat at lunch um, and who's coming home to watch Little House on the Prairie uh, and, 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 and see Paul play the fiddle. Um, what, what words of advice would you give to the younger Vanessa David? Oh, you know, it's, I always joke about this. I, I wish I had stayed away from boys. <laughs> you know, I, I've wasted so much energy on boys and I should have spent that time on myself and on my career. Um, but I think that sort of translates, you know, into don't look for outside approval. You know, um, I think you got to find find the love within and make it work, you know, as I'm here trying to oh. desperately find an agent, you know, outside approval. <laughs> huh. <laughs> Well, I think you just gave us the name to this episode, which is going to be Find the Love Within. Yeah, oh, there we go. David. I liked it. There we go. <laughs> well, Vanessa, thank you for stopping by Uncorking Story and letting me uncork yours. Please keep us up to date on your path to publication. Awesome. Thank you so very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.